like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, Trevor here. Just want to hit y'all with a quick disclaimer before we start today's episode. This week, we'll be talking about a lot of issues relating to the gay and trans communities, both now and as far back as the 1960s. Of course, terminology today is a lot different from terminology back then. In fact, it's a constantly evolving thing. So it can be tricky getting it right sometimes. We're going to do our best today to be as respectful as possible and use proper terms and pronouns as we understand them. That said, we're human and we might sometimes get it wrong, or not all the way correct. So if you notice something, please just reach out to us and let us know. We're constantly learning and we always want to do the right thing. We're more than happy to take feedback and correct something if we messed it up. So please hit us up on social media. We're at Facing Evil Pod. You're listening to Facing Evil, a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the show and do not represent those of iHeartRadio or Tenderfoot TV. This podcast contains subject matter, which may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Facing Evil from Tenderfoot TV and iHeartRadio. We are your hosts. I'm Rasha Pecorero. And I am Yvette Gentile, and we are here, as always, with our amazing producer, Trevor Young. Hey. A man of many words. (laughs) (laughs) Trevor, I love it. So, guys, I had a crazy dream last night. Have you ever dreamt that you were in a tidal wave? Hmm. And you feel this, like, you feel the sensation of the wave, like, rolling, about to roll over your head? So many times. Right? Like, it's, I, I mean, it's crazy. So... I was wondering, does anybody know, like when you dream about stuff like that, what it really means? Mm -hmm. I remember mom saying, because I've dreamt about tsunamis or tidal waves like my whole life. And I remember her when she was alive, she'd always say that just means good change is coming. You know, of course, she was poly positive. So she'd always say it was good change. (laughs) Any dreams I've ever had with like physical sensations is usually more reflective of like some sort of like paranoia I'm dealing with, you know, internally. You know, whether that's about like some sort of natural disaster or something else going on that manifests itself in a like physical movement, whether it's in water or the earth shaking or whatever it is. Oh, my God, Trevor, that's so deep because you heard what I just said, right? I was dreaming about a tsunami and then there was an earthquake. Which causes a tsunami in real life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All righty. Well. 
Please, Trevor, will you take us through today's case? The police department found that Johnson, whose body was found floating in the Hudson River, committed suicide. But those closest to her doubt that's the story. Her death 25 years ago still remains a mystery. Marsha Johnson said, I got my civil rights and then threw a shot glass into a mirror. And that started the riots. The idea that she was allowed to die without the proper response from authorities to investigate what happened to her. Marsha P. Johnson was a transgender activist and cultural icon who lived in New York from the 60s through the early 90s. She was a trailblazer for gay and trans rights and fought constantly to protect herself and those in her community. The story of Marsha's death is a sad one and is largely reflective of the world in which she struggled to obtain rights. After the New York Gay Pride Parade in 1992, Marsha disappeared. No one is really sure what happened to her, but her body was found floating in the Hudson River just a few days later. Marsha's case is unsolved to this day. It's unclear who killed her or how she died. But the most common theory is that transphobic gang members attacked her, killed her, and then dumped her body. Marsha's death sent shockwaves through the queer community. Not only was Marsha a well-known figure, almost like a mother to some, but it was upsetting to many that the police did virtually nothing to investigate her murder or disappearance. And so, what actually happened to Marsha? Why was law enforcement so disinterested in finding out? And how is her legacy, one of both strife and perseverance, reflective of the ongoing struggles for queer acceptance? So let me just say, as an openly gay woman, I cannot begin to tell you how much Marsha means to me personally. She was a trailblazer, an absolute icon, and a badass, in my humble opinion. And I truly believe that without Marsha, we wouldn't have a fraction of the amount of acceptance and love for queer people that we actually have today. I agree. I think Marsha is one of the crowning figures in the queer and especially the trans community. Mm -hmm. She was really one of the first people to do it. So I'm really happy we're doing this today, frankly. I'm so proud. Yeah. And I have to say, you know, thank you to my sister, Rasha, for introducing me to Miss Marsha P. Johnson, because I would not have known about her otherwise. And watching the Netflix special, right, was so inspiring. And I believe that she's a part of all of our history, not just the transgender community. But, you know, I think about how challenging it had to have been for Marsha, especially in the 1960s. I mean, first of all, not just being queer, but being a person of color. Mm -hmm. Just think about how much she actually had to overcome and how much crap yep. that she probably had to deal with, like, on the daily. On the daily. Exactly. And she wasn't the only one. You know, one huge reason that we want to talk about Marsha today is that, sadly, her case, it's a common story for many trans people across the world. In fact, according to the Human Rights Campaign, of 157 reported cases of fatal violence against transgender women since the year 2013, 78% of them were transgender women of color. So let's also keep in mind that much of what's going on here is wrapped up in sex work. 
it was very common for transgender women, especially in New York at that time, mm -hmm. to in fact be sex workers. So in that same report from the Human Rights Campaign, I found that one in three victims of anti-transgender fatal violence since 2013 reportedly engaged in some form of sex work. So this is also a huge part of what's going on here. It's a huge part of a bigger problem we're talking about, and it's a big part of Marsha's story. That's so true. I mean, sadly, I think Marsha had a lot, you know, working against her, but because this is what we do on Facing Evil, we need to see the light in the darkness. We're hoping that Marsha's story can raise awareness of the trend in violence against gay and trans people of color. And we also, we want to elevate the story of Marsha herself and give her her flowers. She never got her flowers, I believe, when she was actually on this earth. So I just want to shower her with all the flowers that we possibly can. <laughs> I, I love that Marsha's been getting more attention in recent years, and that's great to see. But I think mm -hmm. you're right. I think for decades past, a lot of people didn't know about Marsha. So I think yeah. yes. finally, yes. right? <laughs> Time for a whole new generation to know about her. Yes. And before we get into it and get into the nitty gritty, I want to do a quick disclaimer about terminology and pronouns. So during most of Marsha's life, she presented as a woman. But in today's world, I think that Marsha would have referred to herself as a transgender woman or maybe even non-binary or gender fluid. But at the time, <laughs> you know, those those terms weren't exactly out there. I think she referred to herself as a, as a transvestite, which, of course, you know, we wouldn't use that word. Um, so although Marsha was assigned male at birth, we will respectfully refer to Marsha with she, her pronouns at all times throughout this podcast. And I truly believe that pronouns are a way of validating one's identity in the LGBTQ community and with allies. So my pronouns, with that all being said, my pronouns are she, her, and I identify as a lesbian or a gay woman. So I think it's important to share with our audience, Trevor and Yvette, what are your pronouns and how do you identify? My pronouns are she, her, and I identify as a straight female. And my pronouns are he, him, and I identify as a pansexual male. Thank you for that. I think it's important to to share that with the audience, you know, like pronouns are, are definitely important. Alrighty. Well, let's dive in, Trevor. Can you tell us about Marsha's background? I sure can. So on August 24th of 1945, Marsha was born as Malcolm Michaels Jr. in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Uh, Marsha was part of a big New Yorker family. One interesting thing is that her assigned middle name did not actually start with a P, as in Marsha P. Johnson. Uh, Russia, I know you love this story, so I thought I'd let you tell us about why. Well, I can't say Marsha's name without even saying the P, you know, because, you know, I read that later on in life, you know, Marsha would always say that the P in Marsha P. Johnson stands for pay it no mind. <laughs> she wanted people to pay it no mind about her gender, pay it no mind about her sexuality, all the things. And I just I love that so much. And of course, Marsha's assigned surname, you know, was Michaels. So Johnson, her last name was made up too. And I heard that she picked that because she always frequented the Howard Johnsons on 6th Street in Manhattan. So she just created her gorgeous, amazing self. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so Marsha would also say that she enjoyed wearing dresses as early as age five growing up. 
But predictably, she kind of got bullied and harassed by other boys in her neighborhood. And uh, so this kind of turned her off from wearing dresses, and she didn't really do it for the rest of her childhood. But bullying wasn't really even the worst of it. Uh, According to Marsha, she was also sexually assaulted by a 13-year-old boy when she was a child. And this led her to refrain from or engage in any sexual activity until she was 17. God, I I can't even imagine. Like, that's already like such a rough childhood. Mm -hmm. And I also know that Marsha struggled at home. And Marsha said that her mom often dismissed homosexuality. But I read this weird quote where her mom supposedly pressured Marsha into marrying a billionaire. I mean, isn't that a weird thing to say? I mean, it just seems like in the same breath, like she knew. Yeah, like I know, right? Like, did her mom know she was gay? Like, you wouldn't say that to a a little boy. Right. Like, you should marry a billionaire. No, (laughs) like that's just so weird to me. Um, But Marsha, you know, after high school, she ended up moving to New York City in 1963 And apparently she only had $15 in her pocket and one change of clothes with her at the time. Yep. And Marsha eventually settled in Greenwich Village. She kind of got by by waiting tables and also starting to engage in sex work, supposedly near that Howard Johnson's on 6th that you mentioned, Russia, where she got her name. But about the sex work, Marsha would say that being a part of that community led to her coming out and being her authentic self. Quoting her here, my life has been built around sex and gay liberation, being a drag queen and sex work. And so it was around this time that Marsha also started appearing in drag publicly. According to some photos we have and those who knew her, her style was not really like the elevated drag that you might see like on RuPaul's Drag Race or Our favorite cabaret clubs or <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah, we love RuPaul's Drag yes. Race. <laughs> Yeah, and so obviously Marsha couldn't really afford all the big fancy clothes you might see on that runway or, you know, anything like that. So she just kind of wore what she could find for cheap, you know, anything she could grab off a rack for five bucks or less or whatever it was. But I will say she never looked cheap. Like she, I've seen amazing photos of her. Like she wasn't the best at doing her makeup Mm -hmm. or, you know, didn't always have the right wig, but she was tall and slim and beautiful. And she had, you know, long flowy dresses and robes. And she always, like any good queen, always had shiny heels on. (laughs) And when I think of Marsha, I think of her Hawaiian haku lei, her flower lei that she always wore on top of her head. It's like she needed, yes, the crown. Like she knew that she was a vibrant, beautiful queen. Yeah, I love that she made them by herself. I remember like reading about how she would just like kind of like find these materials laying around and just piece them together. And, uh, you know, I think most photos you see of Marsha, she's probably got that on. So it's it's kind of iconic at this point. And I will say, I do also think she struck a really unique balance between femininity and masculinity. And that's really hard to do. Absolutely. Uh, It seems to, I think, have been a really kind of like new and very revolutionary thing for her at the time. Like you probably just didn't see like a lot of people who look like Marsha walking down the street in New York City in the 60s. No, she was ahead of her time. Totally. I think it was super bold of her to do that. And, you know, she just clearly had a lot of confidence. Right. I mean, she really walked the walk and she lived out loud and proud. And like you said earlier, you, you know, in the 60s, 
I'm sure you didn't see anybody walking around like that, you know, and especially so confident. She was completely 100% fully living in her own skin. And she gave zero Fs. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I love that. Yeah, I love that she was confident. I don't necessarily think that she desired the spotlight. You know, I think she was just kind of doing her own thing and just wanted to be herself. The reality, though, is that whether she wanted it or not, she shortly after this period was about to get a lot of attention. And that's because of something called Stonewall, which some of you might know about. We need to take a quick break. But when we come back, we will talk about Stonewall and Marsha's involvement in that. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. (sighs) Good one, Dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So now we are going to talk about something that is so important to me and every single member of the LGBTQ plus community and, of course, our allies. And that is the Stonewall Uprising, also known as the Stonewall Riots. This was the start of what we now call Pride. So in case you haven't heard about Stonewall, Stonewall was a huge moment and movement for our community. And Marsha was a big part of it. Yeah, there are a ton of documentaries and other ways you can learn about Stonewall, and I encourage everybody to do that. But here's kind of the overview. So the Stonewall Inn was a pretty popular gay bar in Greenwich Village at the time. Uh, In 1969, they actually started letting trans women and drag queens into the bar for the first time. And Marsha was one of the kind of first of those to frequent the Stonewall Inn. The inn was a bit of a DIY space, so it didn't really have an official liquor license or anything like that. 
Uh, and so the NYPD kind of knew about some of the illegal activity going on here mm -hmm. and they kept a very like watchful eye on it. And they were really looking for any chance to like pounce on the Stonewall Inn. And so they did. Mm -hmm. Of course they did. <laughs> on June 28th of 1969, they initiated a full raid of the Stonewall Inn. Uh, keep in mind, it was also illegal for men to dress as women at the time. So police raids of gay bars were like a pretty common thing. You'd hear about that a lot. Mm -hmm. But usually they would arrest like all the drag queens and send them to jail. But this night, that didn't happen. Something completely different happened. Yes, this night was different. It was very different because the Stonewall patrons, they decided that tonight enough was enough. And they they decided to fight back. They were tired of being bullied and harassed, you know. So it goes, they all got rounded up and they started pushing back against the cops. And yelling and screaming and all kind of things started happening. But there was one particular drag queen that she got shoved into the car and then they slammed her head against the door. And you can imagine, you know, everybody is witnessing this and they slam her head down and the crowd just goes ballistic. They start booing. Mm -hmm. They start yelling things like gay power. And some people, they say, started throwing beer bottles, coins, I mean, all kind of things at the police cars. So this just reminds me of what John Lewis would always say. This was good trouble. Good trouble. They were fighting back. They were fighting against everything. Police brutality. Police brutality. Like, homophobia. I mean, all the things not being accepted. Everything. So when I say enough was enough, this is the moment it all went down. Yes. And one of the pivotal moments of that first night, there was a lesbian who got into a violent scuffle with four different police officers and they were beating her with their batons and they actually pinned her to the ground. And many witnesses actually reported that it was a black butch lesbian named Stormy DeLarvery. And so the story goes, Stormy looked up at the crowd of bystanders and shouted, why won't you do something? And that is the moment that all of those witnesses said that the crowd absolutely exploded and it became a full-blown mob. That's right. I mean, and it got so crazy that they started destroying and turning over police cars and fires were erupting like everywhere. I mean, it was utter chaos. And obviously the commotion- They were pissed. Well, right, right. I mean, the commotion attracted more people. And soon they say that over 500 people were a part of this riot. And it escalated into two days of full-on rioting, followed by, I guess, smaller demonstrations taking place over the next week. So it was like a revolution. So Marsha is kind of credited as having a big role in this. However, her involvement is actually a little bit more mysterious than maybe people are willing to admit. So there, there are kind of all these conflicting accounts of where and when Marsha was at Stonewall, and really none of them are verified. So we don't actually know where Marsha was, but we're going to throw a couple things out there and just keep in mind that, again, none of it's verified. So one of the rumors was that when the first group pushed back against the police, when everything was really starting to kind of happen for the first time, Marsha was part of that group that was like yelling and screaming and all that stuff. Uh, Marsha later denied that, though, saying she wasn't even there at that time. I know. One of my favorite stories was 
While the police were arresting folks, Marsha, this is the story, right? Marsha apparently threw a bottle or something in a mirror and she shouted, I want my civil rights. I could hear her too. I could always like, I can too. I can like <laughs> see her say, God damn it, I want my civil rights. So, yes. <laughs> or something like that. But I guess no one knows the exact quote. And some people say that she threw a shot glass. But on other accounts, they say she threw a brick. I mean, I don't know. We don't, we really don't know. None of it is verified, right? So who's to say? <laughs> so what's so funny about that? Like you both said, like Marsha has denied it. It's almost like she was <laughs> like, it was like a game of telephone. Like, oh, did you see Marsha P. Johnson there? Oh, Marsha was there. Marsha was there, you know, <laughs> but for sure there are witnesses that saw her there on the second night of rioting. And many say that Marsha actually dropped a bag of bricks on a police car windshield, completely shattering it. So that's probably where that brick story comes from. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so obviously Stonewall was crazy, and whether or not Marsha was involved to that extent is, you know, TBD or what have you. I want to believe she was there. <laughs> Same, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a really interesting thing that she was kind of given credit, especially if she didn't, you know, actually do any or some of that stuff. And the fact that she kind of denied a lot of it, too, is interesting to me. Like, you know, maybe she was kind of like forced into this role of being the face of this movement and maybe she didn't mm. even really want to be. I, I don't really know, but I find that interesting to think about. Could be her humility too. She was very humble. Right. Yeah. And you think about it too. She took care of so many of them, right? And I think she was just, she was a legend to them. So it's like, well, the legend had to, had be, to be there, there on the first night, <laughs> yeah. you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> the reality though, is that Marsha's biggest role was more like in the aftermath of the things that happened after Stonewall. And so after the dust had sort of settled and the, the fires had been put out in Greenwich Village, Marsha joined what was called the Gay Liberation Front, a sort of new activist group created to build on the momentum of the Stonewall Uprising. So on June 28th of 1970, which was a whole year after Stonewall, Marsha walked in what was then the first ever gay pride rally in New York City, also known then as the Christopher Street Liberation Day. And this is how we got pride, as Russia was saying. And then something happened a few years later um, in 1973 that actually makes me incredibly, incredibly sad and mad at the same time. I truly believe that this was a huge blow to the transgender community and to transgender rights and awareness. So both Marsha and another legend in the trans community, Sylvia Rivera, were actually banned from participating in the gay rights rally in 1973. The organizers were made up of cisgender gay men and women, and they decided they didn't want any drag queens or anyone from the trans community there, which is sickening to me because we're all a community. You can't leave them out just because you think they don't represent all of us. That just breaks my heart. I don't even know why they did that. I think in their heads, maybe they thought like it was a faster path to getting gay rights. I, I don't know, but they completely cut out drag queens and the trans community. And that just makes me so mad. And I've seen footage. I've seen Sylvia grab the mic and screaming at the top of her lungs. like, And they're booing her. Yeah. Like that's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you think about white middle-class America in the 1970s, you know, their perception of gay people was so distorted yeah. and so different from what you know, we think of today. And so I think probably the organizers of 
the rally and the the march were thinking like, hey, we need these people to see gay people as non-threatening, as non-deviants or whatever it was, you know? We need to whitewash it. Yeah, we need to essentially, yeah, like we need to whitewash it and make it like palatable to, you know, straight middle-class families and stuff like that. So a major contradiction. Yeah, I mean, there was kind of like this promise of like, you'll get yours eventually, but we have to do this first step if we ever want to get there kind of thing. But yeah. it sucks because it was still so deeply rooted in A, racism, B, transphobia, and see a phobia against sex workers, right? Like, I think a big part of it was that a lot of them were sex workers and there was like a lot of stigma attached to that, of course. So all those are bad things to shun people for. Right, right. Anyhow, not much is really known about Marsha's life after that point. There were a few notable things that happened. In 1975, for example, she was actually photographed by Andy Warhol, which was a cool thing. Uh, one Polaroid of her was included in his project portfolio entitled Ladies and Gentlemen. I think that got her a lot of fame. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, I think when I try to explain to someone who Marsha P. Johnson was, especially if they're in the queer community, I'm like, you know, the picture from Andy Warhol and they're like, or the Polaroid. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen her. I read it was weird, though, because the kind of image and the fame she got from that was very different from the reality of what she was living, which was like, right. she was very poor, very much like on the street at the time. Still surviving by sex work. Right. And she only got paid, you know, they only got paid $50 for that too, you know. Oh, right. Each model, right? Yeah. 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 So things weren't super going well for Marcia, despite, you know, a few cool things like that, especially when the 1980s rolled around. Marcia's life, like so many other gay people and so many other trans people at the time, became really consumed by the HIV and AIDS crisis. And she was a big part of all the movements, the marches that were supposed to raise awareness of AIDS and HIV. And she was also a part of the, you know, demonstrations to put pressure on government to do something, do anything to help with this, which of course we know they really didn't. They did not. <laughs> and so then on June 26th of 1992, actually, she disclosed to an interviewer that she herself was HIV positive after receiving a diagnosis just two years earlier. Sadly, Marcia would only live less than two weeks after that revelation. And for the moment, we need to take another break. But when we come back, we will talk about how Marcia died, or rather, how she was murdered. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always gonna have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. 
There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry though, he's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now we're going to talk about how Marsha died. And sadly, there's not a ton of information here, but we're going to do the best we can. And I highly, highly recommend going to Netflix and watching the documentary The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson because transgender activist Victoria Cruz did so much on researching Marsha's murder. I'm just going to call it a murder. So on the morning of July 6th, 1992, Marsha's body was actually found floating in the Hudson River. And this was just two days after the year's gay pride parade, which was the last time that any of Marsha's friends had actually seen her. So the autopsy report could not prove a verifiable cause of death, something I know my true crime mind is just I'm trying to be a sponge, but I know from Trevor (laughs) that a lot of times when bodies are found in water, there's not a whole lot that you can find out about what happened to them. But one big thing to note, when they pulled up Marsha's body, she had a big gaping wound in the back of her head. That's just it's so sad to think about her, you know. Yeah. In the Hudson River. Um, a lot of her friends said that, you know, Marsha was in a very fragile state. And we have to think about, right, all of the things Marsha's been through. Like, she probably was in a fragile state majority of her life, you know, right. even though she was walking so tall and proud still, right? She was a marginalized human. Yes, yes. Marsha's cause of death was initially determined to be a suicide. Nope. 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 We know that. We all know that. That is not true. And especially Marsha's friends and family, they never in a million years believed that she would do that. Mm -mm. Ever. Yeah, it's a bit of a different conversation. I do think when we're talking about trans people and depression and suicidal ideations, I do think there's a conversation there. I think it's probably a different episode, but it's always possible and it's worth considering. Right. Uh, that said, there is a lot of evidence we can talk about here that suggests otherwise. So uh, one of those is that her friend, Randy Wicker, came forward to police saying uh, people had actually seen Marcia get into a fight with a local gang just two days before she was found dead, which is, I mean. Not a coincidence. Yeah. So one of those witnesses said Marcia was being constantly harassed by one specific member of this gang and that this guy would shout all these homophobic slurs at her in public, say all these horrible things and call her names and harass her just nonstop. So, I mean, that right there is a huge red flag. Huge. Yeah. And that that witness account that you're talking about was never verified only because it was never properly investigated by 
the police. Um, yeah. Police never followed up on any of those leads that they got or reported any findings. And that particular witness said he tried to tell police what he knew, but he was totally brushed off. So sadly, the mystery of Marsha's death remained just that, a mystery. Yeah, I mean, maybe there's room here to talk about why police would be so uh, dismissive of a case like Marsha's. I think maybe the answer is probably very obvious, which is that, um, you know, trans people at the time were considered second class citizens, less than humane, Mm -hmm. certainly far from a priority for the NYPD, I'm sure. And that's just really sad. And it speaks to, I think, a lot of homophobia, transphobia, probably racism that was prevalent at the time, and I'm sure is still a huge problem. So unfortunately, that's where her case kind of stood for many years, really, you know, again, police not doing anything about it. And then in 2002, 10 years later, there was a bit of public pressure on the police to revisit the investigation and do something. Mm -hmm. All they really did, though, was reclassify the suicide to, quote, undetermined. Better than suicide, I guess, but still. Yeah. So another decade goes by. And in 2012, trans activist Mariah Lopez does a lot of work to kind of raise awareness of Marsha and the fact that her case was never really solved. And she kind of rallies a lot of people in New York City's LGBTQ plus community. And they led police to reopen the investigation into Marsha's death, which is pretty big. Sadly, the cause of death remained unchanged, though. So they reopened the case and really, again, didn't do anything. So like right now, it still says undetermined, right? So that's where it stands today. Yeah. I mean, who knows if it'll ever change at this point? You know, I think anybody who knows Marcia probably knows what happened. But, you know, as far as something official on paper, we're probably never going to get it. Never say never, Trevor. Yep. You got poly positive <laughs> sisters right here. <laughs> never say never. I guess I, I'm always skeptical that like, you know, racist transphobic police are going to go out of their way to solve like a 20 to 30 year old cold case. I doubt it. You know, I know. I, I, it's like you never say never in, in, in hopes, right? That's why we do this show. That's why we're doing this podcast, you know, to help change people's thinking. You know, my take on Marsha was that um, she was, I mean, at a very high risk for violence. Again, I go back to her being queer, her being Black, her being a sex worker, being on the street, dealing with Johns, dealing with homophobic assholes, dealing with police brutality. I mean, dealing with it all. I mean, it was just a bad situation. And she was still unapologetically her. Yes. You yes. know, and I think we also have to keep in mind that Marsha was well known in the community. And I think she might have been a bigger target because of that. You know, she was really well known for her activism work for her drag performing. She was a horrible singer, but she was an amazing performer. <laughs> and I, I trust me, if you Google it and you listen to Marsha sing, it's like nails on a chalkboard, but you can't take your eyes off of her. <laughs> but, you know, like the sad thing is, it's like she she inspired so many queer kids like me, you know, and and so many humans that aren't even in the queer community. And it's sad that I think we may never know what actually happened to her. And 
Marsha faced adversity, like we've been saying, her entire life for being trans, for being queer, for being a sex worker, all the things. And that may have been the very reason that she was killed. But this has to change for the rest of the community. And I think how we can change this is by, number one, dismantling homophobia. And number two, dismantle transphobia, even in our beautiful gay community. So I think we need to take Marsha's example and work to dismantle all the phobias, get rid of them bit by bit. And we need to create more safe spaces for trans people everywhere. I get really excited when we get to talk about things that people don't get to hear about a lot. And I think these are some fantastic organizations that you may not have heard of that you can donate to to help the transgender community. And we're just naming a few here, but please look them up. Trans Housing Coalition, Housing Works, Black AIDS Institute, and it's named after her, the Marsha P. Johnson Institute. These are organizations that are doing amazing work, and I think it's a way that we can give back. All right, it's time for our last segment of the day, our Imua. Today, we want to dedicate our Imua to the beautiful trans community, especially to the trans community of color. Everything you do is a brave and bold statement of perseverance and self-actualization, and you deserve health, safety, and most importantly, love and acceptance. That's right. And we really want to honor those that came before, especially and obviously Marsha Pay-It-No-Mind Johnson, and also Sylvia Rivera, the warrior of trans equality. I mean, there are so many women who spent their lives facing all types of evil. But the one thing that they had in common, they never let that defeat them. They kept continuing to fight for equal rights in this country every moment of every day. Onward and upward. Imua. Imua. Well, that's our show for today. We'd love to hear what you thought about today's discussion and if there is a case you'd like us to cover. Find us on social media or email us at facingevilpod at tenderfoot.tv. Until next time. Aloha. Facing Evil is a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The show is hosted by Rasha Pecorero and Yvette Gentile. Matt Frederick and Alex Williams are executive producers on behalf of iHeartRadio, with producers Trevor Young and Jesse Funk. Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay are executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV, alongside producer Tracy Kaplan. Our researcher is Claudia D'Africo. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Find us on social media or email us at facingevilpod at tenderfoot.tv. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio or Tenderfoot TV, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, 
or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.